Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Last week, if you remember, and I'm sure you do, we looked at the miracle of the feeding of the 20,000. And today we want to look at a couple more miracles. The miracle of Yeshua walking on the water, and the miracle of a whole boat full of people teleporting to a different location. Alright? Now, we have to ask, especially these miracles... A lot of people ask, why does Lazarus tell us this? All right, why, why is he giving us these miracles? Why is he telling us about this? Well, this is why this gospel was written. We have to keep that in mind. John 20, 31. But these, speaking of the signs, these signs have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. You know, can you imagine being there and seeing these incredible, incredible miracles take place? These people had to realize This guy is not some normal guy. And he keeps claiming to be God. And when he claims to be God and does this stuff, you start thinking, yeah, I think he might be right. Well, in Matthew and Mark's Gospel, the walking on the water, this scene immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000, just like it does in John's Gospel. Following this event, Lazarus is going to return to the theme of bread and describe Yeshua as the bread of life. And he launches into this major discourse about the true significance of the loaves. But this miracle of Yeshua walking on the water and His disciples being rescued from this storm and teleported to their destination is not mentioned in the rest of the Gospel. In other words, you got this miracle of feeding, then you have a discourse on the feeding, but in the middle you got this little blurb about you know, walking on the water and teleporting. And this causes many to question, what's the story here for? I mean, the rest of the chapters deals with the theme of the bread. Well, some say that the walking on this water story connects to the Passover liturgy in Jerusalem. Uh, The liturgy emphasized the I am phrase, which we see in this discourse from Exodus They would say that the connection with Passover and the passages through the Red Sea, the I am in the liturgy, seem to clearly reflect back to John 6. And I think the feeding of the 5,000 has Passover themes and the walking on the water climaxes with I am. So there's some Passover themes there. So I think that view does have merit. But I think that the significance of this walking on the water and teleporting to shore is mainly here as a lesson, a teaching lesson for the disciples. Because they had just seen an incredible miracle, but they still don't get it. Okay? They don't get it. Remember where we left off last week? Yeshua had been healing all day, teaching about the kingdom of God. Then He feeds 20,000 people and they have leftovers. Well, you know, the disciples were involved in, in the New American Standard doesn't say it, but David, were you reading from Young's, David? Young's, you know, makes it clear the disciples were involved in handing this stuff out. Of course, they were involved in this, and so they were probably, you know, pretty excited. They got to distribute the bread to these hungry people. And the miracle, as he did this, it caused the people to say, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. So Yeshua perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Alright? There, he feeds these people and these people are like, wow, this guy is something special. This is the one that's going to be our king. We need to, let's just make him king right now. He knows that the crowd are, you know, being burned up with this messianic fever. They want, they want freedom. Remember, the, the Messianic fever is really high right now. It's around Passover time, and, and that was the significance. The Passover was the exodus, the being freeing from bondage. So, so they're excited. They want to be liberated from Rome. And I don't think it's a stretch to think that disciples fell into that fever themselves. You know, I mean, they're like, yeah, he does do miracles. Yeah, he could free us from Rome. And if we understand this, then I think Matthew and Mark's comment doesn't seem so strange. They say this, Matthew 14. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. So everybody's eating, right? Having a great time. Immediately, he made himself get in the boat. Like, what? Wait a second. We just got done eating. We're trying to fellowship a little. We're basking in this 
you know, this glory and he rushes them down to the boat. You need to get out of here. He made them, it says, get into the boat. That's a very strong Greek word. It's the verb anagkazo, and it means he forced, he compelled them. Get in that boat and get out of here. He coerced them, possibly against their will. You guys get in the boat and leave. I mean, it's like you're leaving a party. You know, everybody's having a great time, 20,000 people. Wow, let's look at, this is Messiah. They're excited, they're having a great time. Get in the boat and get out of here. Mark's account uses the same word at this point. Immediately, put him in the boat and got him out of there. You know, the disciples, they had placed all their hopes in Yeshua the rabbi. They'd given up everything to follow him 24-7. And making him a, king, him a king, that probably sounded good to them. I mean, if he gets to be king, they're part of the administration, right? I mean, this sounds like an exciting thing. And you know how easy to get, it is to get up in that crowd mentality? So Yeshua forced them to get in the boat and head back towards Capernaum. Well, he sends the multitude away and he goes up to the mountain by himself. You know, Yeshua came bringing a kingdom. But it was a kingdom, not a political kingdom like they wanted. It was a kingdom that would come by means of the cross. And when he told his disciples that, they were like, oh, wait, wait a minute. No, no, that, that, that's not right. They didn't understand what he was telling them. So he sends them out to sea. And I think the reason this miracle's here, I think the reason he sends them to sea, it's a teaching lesson. Very vivid teaching lesson. And I think they're going to get it by the time this is over. So Lazarus gives us a very brief view of this miracle. Shorter than any of the other gospel writers. And I think it's because he assumes his readers are familiar with the story. He's writing... Later in the period, and so probably most of his readers had already read this account. And if we look at the other Gospels, it helps us really fill in all the details. And because Lazarus gives us such a short view here, we're going to put the other Gospels together and get a full account here. 6.16 says, Now when evening came, remember he just put them in the boat, get out. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum. It had already come dark, and Yeshua had not yet come to them. Now, we've already seen from Matthew and Mark, they got in a boat, the Lord made them go, and Lazarus says here, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. But what's interesting, if you compare with Mark, Mark says this, immediately, he put the disciples in the boat to go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida. Now, which is it? Where are they going? Are they going to Capernaum? Or are they going to Bethsaida? These guys confused? No. It's just, you know, here's the sea. Alright. The feeding took place right about here on the lake. So I think the best way to understand what's going on here is Christ is instructing the twelve to row north towards Bethsaida and then turn west and follow the shore around to Capernaum to the northwest shore. Capernaum was Yeshua's headquarters during the Galilean ministry because there was unbelief in his hometown, Nazareth, so Capernaum was his base of operation. So that's where they're going back to. And Lazarus tells us that it had already become dark and Yeshua had not yet come to them. Well, why wasn't Yeshua with them? Where was he? He was up on a mountain praying. Mark tells us, and after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. So Yeshua puts him in a boat, gets him out of there, sends the crowd away. He goes up to the mountain to spend some time in prayer. You know, Yeshua's prayer life is repeatedly mentioned in the Gospels. And that's bothersome to me. I mean, if he's got to spend all this time praying, how about me? He's the God-man and he's spending all this time praying. How much time should I be praying? Think about this, believer. He had just, the reason they went over where they were at in this desolate place was to get a little R&R. They're exhausted. Remember, they didn't even have time to eat, so they went there to get a break. They get there, the crowds are there, so they spend the whole day ministering to the crowds, healing the sick, feeding the people, and then he shoves the disciples in the boat, go, and it'd be a good time to take a nap, right? But he goes up, and instead of going to bed, he spends the night in prayer. 
He's an exhausted man, but he spends all night up praying. I think that really should tell us something about the importance of prayer. If the God-man needed to spend that time in prayer, how much more do we? Just getting before the Father. And I think too often, you know, our prayer life is just a gimme this, gimme that, you know, kind of a thing when it needs to be a time of just praise, you know, for what we have, focusing on how much He has blessed us and, in, and praying for wisdom and understanding in the spiritual realm. It had already become dark and Yeshua had not yet come to them. Now, in this Gospel, darkness is a common theme describing existence without Christ. And darkness of night and the absence of Yeshua, I think, are kind of powerfully linked here. By saying Yeshua had not yet come to them, Lazarus informing his readers about the timing of Yeshua's walking on the water out to the boat. See, this was an event his readers, again, they're all, they're familiar with. They'd have read this in the other Gospels. So he's simply telling them, you know, the part about he walks on the water, that hadn't happened yet, okay? It's dark. They're out there in the storm. They're out there by themselves. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. All right, again, back to the sea. It's dark. It's nighttime. Yeshua is not with them. And you make the occasion even worse. There's a big storm that comes on this lake. Now, the wind normally came from the west, the direction in which the disciples headed, and the Sea of Galilee. It's about 600 feet below sea level. And when you get cool air coming off the tablelands, it rushes down and it, it can stir up really quickly. It's a small lake and it can churn up very violently, very quickly. In his book, the land and the book, Thompson writes this, Small as the lake is, and placid in general as a molten mirror, I have repeatedly seen it quiver and leap and boil like a cauldron when driven by fierce winds. So the disciples, they're out in the boat. You know, these guys are tired. Again, they went over there to rest. They didn't get any rest. As soon as this is over, puts them in a boat, and they are out in the middle of the night in the boat instead of sleeping. And they're out there, and the storm is upon them. Yeshua's not there. And Mark fills in some of the more details for us. He tells us, and when it was the evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea. Okay, hang on to that. That's Mark. It's in the midst of the sea. And he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. So Mark tells us here, they're in the midst of the sea. And Yeshua is alone on the land. And he says Yeshua sees them straining at the oars. This is a present passive participle that refers to distress or torment. They're rowing and they're getting nowhere. As a matter of fact, they're being blown off course. So they're putting all their effort into getting nowhere. And the passive voice tells us that this distress was put on them by the wind, not by their inability to handle a fishing boat. And the present tense again tells us this is a, this distress is continual. Yeshua sees their distress and He heads toward them via the direct route across the water. But He didn't have a boat. So He comes to them on the water, it says, in the fourth watch of the night. Now, Romans divide the period of darkness into four watches of equal length, with the first one starting about 6 to 9 p.m. But the Jews divide it into three watches. So right away we know He's using Roman time here. It's the fourth watch. This would be approximately 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So, as you get to the end of this watch, the sun is coming up. The dawn's beginning to break. Now, remember, they left at dusk. So, they've been out here all night, in the storm, rowing. Okay? How many of you have ever been out to sea in a storm? Violent storm. Okay? Well, I was in the Navy... And so, you know, I did a couple North Atlantic cruises in the winter, which is not a good place to be in the winter. I was on a Spruance-class destroyer, which is about 250 feet long. It's a big boat. We had to change course because we got stuck in a storm, and the boat was starting to form cracks and breaking. I mean, you would be tossed and turned. It was amazing, especially to go down in the berthing compartment. The only way you could sleep is if you tied yourself into your bed. 
So it looked like a spider had come down there, and everyone's got this rope all tied up, and they're tied in the rack so they don't roll out, because it's, I mean, it's rolling, all right? I've also been on Lake Erie, which is a small lake, in a violent storm. And I mean, I've been, I've been more scared on Lake Erie. You're in a boat, and you're wondering, are we going to get back? Because the wind, it just comes all of a sudden, and the waves are kicking up, and you're like, if this thing tips over, it's pretty violent out here. So, I mean, they're they're in a... Some of these guys are fishermen, but they're scared, all right? What's the miracle that Mark records here? He says, seeing them straining at the oars. So Yeshua's up on a mountain. He's about three and a half, four miles away from the disciples. It's dark, and he sees the disciples straining at the oars. I think that's a miracle. I think that's supernatural. The Spirit is informing Yeshua, here's what's going on with your disciples. That's not natural to see that far at dark in the midst of a storm. I read one writer, he says, well, it was a full moonlit night and he could see clearly. I'm like, there's a storm going on, okay? I don't know how many storms you've been in. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like writers miss what the Bible says and make it say what they, because some people just don't like the supernatural, all right? Believers, you know, there are times when we're in the midst of life storms and we wonder if the Lord knows what's happening with us. You know, we're like, Lord, do you even know what's going on with me? Well, He does. He knows exactly where we're going. Just like He sent His disciples, He purposely sent them out there into this storm. And He knew where they were, and He knew what was going on. He had never lost control of the situation for a second. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And even though it feels like sometimes he's not with us, he understands what's going on. And there's a lesson in there somewhere. This is a very important text for us to understand. Because there's going to be times, I guarantee you, you're going to feel like you're drowning in your troubles. Drowning in the, in the situation that you're presented with. But I want you to know, he's there. He's always there. We just need to learn to trust him. 6.19 says, Then when he had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Yeshua walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. All right, they rowed for about three or four miles. In the Greek text, it was 25 or 30 stadion, which is between two and three quarters and three and a half miles. All right, now back to the sea. That puts them about out in the middle of the sea. Now, Matthew and Mark wrote, remember, he's in the middle of the lake. Probably meaning well out into it. The Sea of Galilee at its widest point is about seven miles. So at this point, the disciples are pretty much in the middle of the lake. And that's what Matthew tells us. Matthew says, but the boat was already a long distance from the land. Okay, that's important. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. Battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So the boat had gotten pushed out in the middle of the lake. When See, normally what they would have done... They would have gotten in the boat and they would have hugged the shore. Jews did not like the sea. Okay? They had to fish, but they stayed close to the land because the sea was the entrance to the underworld. And so it kind of scared them. So they're hugging. Now they're pushed out in the middle, in the middle of the storm. It's dark. She was not with them. They're being battered by the waves. They've been doing this all night. So they have to be exhausted. And then... It says, they saw Yeshua walking on the sea, and they all jumped up and shouted for joy. Yay, we're saved! Yeshua's here! Stop this wind, will you? Is that what the text says happened? No, they saw Yeshua, and they were frightened. That doesn't make sense, does it? You think they'd be glad? To... They've been on the boat with him in a storm before. He gets up and rebukes the storm, and everything's calm. They've seen that. So, you see him, you're like, oh great, Yeshua's here. Things are going to be better, all right? When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, Mark says, they supposed that it was a ghost. And they cried out. They were terrified, and they screamed like a bunch of little girls. Alright? Listen, they've been dealing with the natural forces, the wind and the sea, and that has been kind of frightening. But now, they're confronted with the supernatural, and it scares them to death. 
Then here's what we have to understand. What did they think? What do they mean a ghost? Well, belief in human apparitions was part of Yeshua's disciples' world. The term used here for ghost, phantasma, has the idea of a manifestation. It's often used in the sense to appear for supernatural phenomena. And used as a noun, it means apparition or ghost. This is not the Greek word for demon. Alright, they had a separate category for demon and a separate category for ghost. That this was a disembodied spirit of the dead. And here they're on this lake where the, you know, it's the key to the underworld. This thing must have come up from the underworld and it's scaring him. Craig S. Keener in his commentary on John states this. In Mark's account, they are afraid because they assume Jesus to be a spirit. Probably a night spirit or a spirit of one which drowned at sea, which were thought particularly dangerous. <laughs> I guess if, if someone drowned at sea, then their spirit's really dangerous for some reason. I don't know. Now, as we said, the sea was believed to be the home of demons and ghosts. Remember the story where Yeshua cast the demons into the pigs? What did the pigs do? They ran right to the water. Get back to the underworld. See, that's how they saw that. All right, They're going back to where they came from. Back to the underworld. So that's what they viewed it as. Now in the Tanakh, the symbolism of water and sea is the imagery of evil and chaos. We see that particularly in Isaiah. For Lazarus, this could carry similar significance. Yeshua's triumph over the sea represents his triumph over evil forces. So remember, the sea has this semblance of evil. So when he calms it, he's controlling the evil. When he walks on it, he's treading on the evil, basically. They saw Yeshua and they were frightened. Now the phrase walking on the water, that's a common phrase to them of impossibilities. Kind of a common phrase to us for that too, right? You know, we say that, oh, someone admires them. They think this person is, you know, the best person in the world. What they? We say they think they walk on water. You know? The ancient Egyptians used the emblem of two feet on water to express an impossible thing. But here, Yeshua is doing the impossible. And not just for a few yards, over three miles on a turbulent sea. Now, some of the great Jewish prophets of the past had parted the waters so people could walk through on dry ground. Moses did that. Joshua did it. But none had ever walked on the water. Now, the disciples had previously watched Yeshua speak to the waves and wind, and they obeyed Him. They were silenced. Well, now He walks on the sea. And again, in the midst of a storm, only the one who created the seas can walk on them. And by treading on the sea, Yeshua now takes the role that the Hebrew Bible reserved for Yahweh alone. And this is very purposeful, people. Job 9.8 Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Yeshua told them, after He had healed the lame man, they accused Him of claiming to be God. And He said, you're right. I'm absolutely equal with God in every way. But they didn't get it. So he's giving them another miracle to say, are you starting to get it now? You see me walking on the water, the gateway to the underworld. You see me treading on this. I am much more than a political messiah. It's petty to try to make me king. I'm going to rule the world. He's Yahweh, and that's what he's trying to get them to see. Now, some scholars, I hate using that word for people like this, but some scholars... They want to depreciate this miracle. Some people cannot accept the supernatural. Which at my point is then don't get involved in something else besides Bible study. Okay? Because you take the supernatural out of the Bible, what do you have? Man's self, a self-help book or something like that? I don't know what you have. Alright? But some people have translated the Greek preposition epi here as by rather than on. In other words, they saw Yeshua walking by the sea. Uh, some commentators like Bernard and Barclay. William Barclay is very good historically, okay? But he is a liberal. He does, he can't handle miracles, just can't, can't accept it, okay? And he has suggested the disciples rode three or four miles. They were hugging the shore like they should have been, despite what Matthew and Mark say. See, Barclay says they were hugging the shore. Mark says they're a long distance from land. 
They're in the middle of the lake. Barclay says, no, they're hugging the shore. You got to choose who to believe, okay? I'm going to go with Matthew and Mark, okay? <laughs> and the disciples saw Yeshua walking on the sea rather than walking by the sea. If the disciples were sticking close to land, first of all, they're not, they shouldn't be that terrified. And secondly, if they saw Yeshua walking along the shore, why are they scared? Oh, look, he's on the shore. Why would that scare anybody? Throw us a rope, help, pull us in, do something, you know? I mean, there's nothing to be scared. And certainly, it doesn't explain what Matthew records as their response. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Wow, only God's son could walk on the shore like you do. No, that's ridiculous. He was walking on the water. Without the miracle, none of this makes sense. The response, their response doesn't make sense. The purpose of it doesn't make sense. Now, what's missing from Lazarus' account of this story? He gives a brief view, but he leaves out something. All right, Peter. Remember Peter walked in the water too? Matthew's the only one that records that incident. So let's go and let's look at what he's got to say. He says, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, you know, they see him. They think it's a ghost. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out in the water. Now, the if here is a first class condition, which means since. Since that's you, command me. In other words, I'm not jumping out of this boat, but if you tell me to do it, then I know everything will be okay. All right, I'll just, I'm just following your commands and everything will be good that way. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came toward Yeshua. That would have been awesome, wouldn't it? The other disciples sitting in the boat thinking, man, Peter, you're the man, you know? I mean, they're scared. They think it's a go. And here's Peter walking out to him. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink. So he takes his eyes off the Lord and he begins to sink. That's what we do when we're in trials. We forget about the Lord. We take our eyes off the Lord. We focus on our circumstances and we get scared. And Peter says, oh, he, now I want you to notice, he's walking on the water, okay? So we got to give him some credit here. He's doing what nobody else is doing. I love Peter's prayer here. He says, oh, thou most magnificent God who created the heavens and the earth, we do beseech you, Lord. Lord, save me! That's the prayer. That's it. That's a to-the-point prayer. No flowers, no. He just, Lord, I need your help. Save me. This is a present imperative command. Save me. Now, save your people has nothing to do with spiritual life. Okay, the word sozo here is used in its normal meaning from the Tanakh, which is deliverance from danger. He's in danger. And he prays. How long does it take for the Lord to do something about it? Immediately. Yeshua stretched out his hand, took a hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith. Why'd you doubt? You're doing so good. You're walking on the water. Keep this immediately in mind here, okay? He's sinking. Obviously, he couldn't swim. He's going down. The Lord reaches out, grabs him, pulls him up. The Lord saves him. He delivers him. So Yeshua, the God-man, and Peter, the man, they both walk on the water. This is a miracle. We understand that, right? The observable laws of science declare this should not happen. Right? But Yeshua did it. There's no other explanation that it's a miracle. And this leads me to ask this question. Should science have any influence on what we believe about the Bible, about our faith? I mean, if science flat tells us something's impossible, what do we go with here? Should our faith be based solely on the Scriptures? Well, I guess first of all, we really have to understand what we mean by science. Most of what people call science today is theory. It's not science, okay? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines science this way. Knowledge about or study of the natural world. We'll see, they can't study the supernatural. The natural world 
based on facts learned through experiment and observation. That's what science is. Science repeats an act. They go in the lab or they go to, they do another experiment and see, can this be possible? Could it happen? Now, if you did an experiment to see if someone could walk on the water, what would you find? They can't do it. You could do it 10,000, 10 million times. People, you know, they just find people keep sinking. And so science would say, this didn't happen. It didn't happen because we run all the tests and it doesn't happen. Well, the Bible said it happened. And so, you know, God controls. And again, this, the science is the study of the natural world. And we're talking here about the supernatural world. And again, I, I think when most people talk about science, they, they think of facts learned through experiments and observation. This is what people call operation science. Okay? It's operation science. But, when it comes to the study of things like origins, you know, where did we come from? Or earth history or cosmology, science works in a very different way. The process is much more subjective. It involves a whole lot of unprovable assumptions and is based on a great deal of extrapolation rather than observation. This is called origin science. Origin science is nothing but, hey, we made this up. That's what it is. There's nothing they can prove. They tell us that we're on a globe that's spinning at a thousand miles an hour and there's not one scientific, there's not one fact, there's not one experiment that proves that. Not one, people. Everybody believes it, but there's not one experiment. There are a lot of experiments that prove that this earth we're on is immovable. It's standing still. Every time they did an experiment to prove that, they said, whoa, that must have been wrong. So it's just bias. You know, they make stuff up. When it comes to origins, they say, well, they have the thing called the theory of evolution. Because you can't prove it. So science gets into the place of religion, basically. And people start worshiping these guys who think they know, oh, well, they studied string theory. Yes, yeah, come on, man. Just give me some facts, all right? Let's stick to the facts. Because so often, scientists want to come against the Scriptures. And in reality, many conclusions of modern science are neither scientific or empirical. They're just a bunch of made-up stuff. Well, Albert Einstein wrote this. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Wow. Here's why. Knowledge is limited. Okay? Whereas imagination embraces the entire world. Stimulating progress. Giving birth to evolution. Yes, it does. <laughs> it is, strictly speaking, a real factor in scientific research. See? It's just your imagination. What do you think happens? How do you think all the, everything works? Well, let's make this up and yeah, that's a good idea. It's just nonsense, people. Absolute nonsense. And many Christians appear to believe that what scientists say is on par with Scripture. It's not. And there are even times when operation science goes against it. But we have to understand, Scripture always tr trumps science. Trump. Always trumps science. Okay? Scripture does. You know, and I don't care if science can stimulate it or do it again or prove it to you. If the Bible said it happened, we got to believe it. Disciples, they're out there. They're in a bad storm. Why were they at sea? Did they choose to do that? Yeshua said, you guys need to stick around. And they said, no, nah, we're going to go out in the boat anyway. We just think it's the best choice. No, He made them go. They knew it was... God who sent them out there, they, He wanted them out there. You know, I think sometimes we see that the storms of life come upon us even when we're walking in obedience. You know, sometimes, some people have this idea, if I just obey the Lord, everything will be oh, health and wealth and prosperity. Just because I obey the Lord, everything. No, it doesn't work that way. He sent them in the, out in the boat. You know, but there are other times we're caught in a storm because we've disobeyed. You know, Jonah said, I am not going to Nineveh. The Lord said, oh, yes, you are. And he went to Nineveh. Okay? And again, we're in the midst of the storm. we got to decide, is the Lord trying to wake me up here because I'm going the wrong direction? Or is it just a trial? 
to teach me to learn something. It says, they were frightened, but He said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. It is I, is a translation of the Greek, ago ime, which literally means, I am. I am. Now, ago ime, many people say, this is just a normal way of saying it's me. And it can be taken that way. But in this Gospel, Lazarus uses this expression to make it clear that Yeshua is Yahweh. As we've seen, Lazarus, he's a master of hinting at what's below the surface. Okay? And the word Yeshua uses here to identify himself could very legitimately be translated, I am. Yeshua will use the words I am 23 times in this Gospel. Seven with metaphors, we'll see later in this chapter, I am the bread of life. And five times in the claim of divine name for himself, and I think this is one of them in 620, he's saying, I am. Don't be afraid. What? You don't need to be afraid because Yahweh's here. Alright? Out of the storm comes this very comforting, Yahweh is here. Oh, amen. Okay? He manifests to the disciples he is much more than a political messiah. See, this is a teaching lesson he's trying to get them to see. And what he's trying to get them to see is just summed up in I am. They knew that. They had placed their trust in Yeshua as the Messiah. But they needed a reminder that their ideas about his person and work of Messiah were not conditioned by the ideas of the general population. They had to see what they're witnessing was proof of His deity. And we need to realize to the Jewish minds, these words, I am, are very important. This is what Yahweh said to Moses. How was Yeshua from Nazareth able to perform these outstanding, amazing, nature-controlling miracles? It's because He's Yahweh. This man was none other than God in human flesh, fully man, yet fully God. They're scared. Is this a ghost? He says, no, I am. Oh, Yahweh's here. Matthew tells us that Christ stopped the storm. When they got in the boat, the wind stopped. Boy, that must have been a relief just in itself, okay? Now, Lazarus readers, these are Jewish men. They're familiar with Scripture. They might remember that the sea often stands for chaos and and disorder. They know that. And now they see Yahweh, and they knew it was only Yahweh that controls and stills the sea. And they see that. Now, unlike the other three Gospels, Luke's account of the events here that occurred that night immediately are followed by Yeshua asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? So in three of the Gospels, He is giving this miracle on the water saying, I am. And in Luke's, He says, who do they say I am? He's showing them who I am. He's answering that question for them, hopefully permanently. Notice what Mark tells us. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. (laughs) They they didn't get a thing out of it. You just fed 20,000 people. That's really nice. That's a great trick. What's it, what else is up your sleeve? Why didn't they get anything? Their heart was hardened. The Greek word here, poro, metaphorically means to make the heart dull, to grow hard, callous. It's a very strong word. It's used five times in the New Testament. Three, it's referring to non-believers. And remember, he's saying this to his apostles. In spite of all that Yeshua had done earlier that day, heal the sick, feed 20,000 people, Literally creating food, I didn't do it for the disciples. They just didn't get it. They're like, yeah, he's a political messiah. Yeah, let's get on this bandwagon. No, 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 you guys aren't getting it. i got to show you you're not getting it. So he gives them a private miracle. This miracle is for the disciples, and I believe also for us, to demonstrate to them who he was. I am Yahweh. I taught this in chapter 6 or chapter 5. You didn't get it. That's the whole thing. They accuse me of being God. I said I am God. I gave you a whole teaching thing. You still don't get it. I feed all these people. You still don't get it. Let me show you a little bit more. Now, both Matthew and Mark end the incident here with Shua getting in the boat, the wind ceasing, calm brought into the situation. Lazarus adds a teleporting event. 621. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, 
And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. <laughs> now, no wonder Matthew says, and those who were in the boat worshipped him. Okay? You truly are God's son. Think about it. They see Yeshua walking on the water. He gets in the boat. As soon as he gets in the boat, it goes dead calm. And they look around, and they're on the shore. They're at their destination. They were in the middle of the lake. Now they're at their destination. This is not normal stuff, okay? Now, some try to explain immediately here by saying, it seemed fast. I mean, literally. These are guys, all right, see, they've been in the boat rowing all night. Now Yeshua's in the boat. So it just, with him in the boat, it seemed like it went by fast. Wow, we're already there. That's the immediately. That's where they get that, okay? They say that, that explanation could account for John's description. Yeah, why did, he put that in there immediately for a reason, okay? And eventually they arrived at shore, or they were there soon, or something along that line. No, he doesn't say that. Immediately, if these words are to be taken literally, and I believe they are, they're out three miles off the shore. And just as immediately as Yeshua reached out and pulled Peter out of that water, just that quick there at the port. Boat's tied up and they're like, we're done. Oh my word. This is a miracle again that defied the observable laws of space and time. Think about what this did to the disciples. Now let me ask you something. You think this is a teleporting event? That kind of sounds hard to believe, you know, teleporting. But you know this, listen, teleporting appeared in Jewish legends. Probably originally rooted in the biblical traditions about Elijah. You remember when Ob- what Obadiah said to Elijah? Obadiah finds Elijah. They're in a drought. And Elijah says, go tell Ahab you found me. And he goes, no, I'm not doing that. Because you'll go somewhere else. All right, he says in, in 1 Kings 18, 12, he says, it'll come about when I leave that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I don't know. Yeah, sure, I'll go tell Ahab, hey, we found him. And as soon as I come back, you're gone. And he says, so when I come and tell Ahab, and he can't find you, he's going to kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. <laughs> he's telling him, he's telling, look, I've been a good Christian all my life, okay? Don't do this to me. Don't get me killed. Alright? He believed that Yahweh would teleport Elijah to a different location. How about Ezekiel 3.14? The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of Yahweh was upon me. Now, the hand of Yahweh here controls Ezekiel's movement. It detaches him from surroundings and transports him to different places. Just a vision, or does he really transport? Could be really transporting. Look at Acts. You're probably familiar with this, right? When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. He's going, he come up out of the water, and the eunuch's going, where did Philip go? He's gone. And the eunuch no longer saw him. He said, well, he must have went somewhere. He went on the way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, Azotus is about 35 miles from Gaza. And it was near Gaza where he's preaching and he met the eunuch. So he's there, he baptized him, boom, he disappears. So I think he just, the boat is in one place and the next thing it's in another place. That's not hard for the Lord, okay? We, there's no, nothing is impossible for God. It sounds strange to us, but anything here sounds strange to us. None of you ever walked on water, you know? you never seen the Lord walk on water. You haven't seen three miles, what's going on three miles distance from you. None of us see that. So how many miracles do we have in this text? You know, people say, this is a miracle, the walking on the water. Well, I think there's a lot more than one miracle here. First of all, Yeshua knows from over three miles away exactly what the disciples are doing. They're stuck in the sea in this fierce storm. Miracle number two, Yeshua walks out to them. Miracle number three, Peter walks to Yeshua. That's a miracle. Miracle number four, storm stops immediately and he gets a boat. Miracle number five, all of a sudden, they're at Capernaum. They've been working all night to get there, and bang, they're there that quick. All of these miracles demonstrate 
Yeshua's equality with the Father. The writers of the Tanakh described doing all these things. They just, this was Yahweh who did these things. What a night this would have been for the disciples. You know, can you imagine? They probably thought, man, I'm too tired. I'm seeing things. I'm experiencing things that aren't happening. I'm so exhausted. Well, Matthew records their response to these events. And I think it tells us how significant these events were. When they got in the boat, the wind stopped. Okay, dead, dead calm. Those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, you are certainly God's son. All right, let me ask you something. Who is in the boat worshipping Yeshua? A bunch of Jews. Right? Who do the Jews worship? For a Jew to worship anybody but Yahweh is a capital offense. Okay? They're worshiping a man who's in their boat. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. Yeshua Himself said, Go, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. You, we only can worship God. If the disciples are worshiping Yeshua, I think they understand He is God. I think they finally are getting it. They're starting to pick up what Yeshua said earlier, that all who honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. They're starting to get it, and as they call Him Yahweh, as they worship Him, they are literally honoring the Father. So they're not violating monotheism. They realize He is Yahweh. Now, I think we can safely say that the Exodus motif following the Passover was in the mind of Lazarus as he selected some of the details of this narrative. I don't think it was the main emphasis. I think the main emphasis, we got to teach these disciples. They guy, These guys need to wake up and understand who I am. But I want you to notice something. There's so many parallels as you read this text. As this text is in your mind, let me run through a few verses of Psalm 107. They wandered in the wilderness. This is a Passover motif here. In the desert region, they did not find way to the inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. For He has satisfied the thirsty soul, the hungry soul. He is filled with what is good. They were hungry. He filled them. They were all full. So full that they had leftovers. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on the water. Oh, now we're switching to the water scene. They have seen the works of Yahweh. Did they see His works? Absolutely. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted the waves of the sea. So here we got a storm now in this time. They they reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble and He brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. The disciples would have been familiar with this psalm and they're seeing this played out in their life that day. And what here is attributed to Yahweh is performed in front of them by Yeshua to show them He is the God-Man. Now, there's no doubt this is an awesome story. You know, of the deliverance of God from the storm. But I want to remind you, as I've reminded you in the past, it's not always Yahweh's will to deliver His people from trials. The disciples could have drowned in that storm in the boat, and it still would have been the Lord's will. He rescued His disciples from the fierce storm. He got them safely to their destination. We like that kind of ending. But this is not always the ending of life. You know, God's servant John the Baptist, who Yeshua said there was not a greater man born and given among women. He lost his head to Herod. Beheaded him. Yahweh delivered Peter from prison, remember? But what happened to James? James was put to death in prison. Both disciples, alright? The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. This is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture teaching us about faith. 
Hebrews chapter 11. He said, Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Man, I love these stories, okay? Men of faith conquering the world. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured. It's like there's a screech. You know, the record's going, oh, others were tortured. What? That doesn't belong in there. It's a rapid transition of thought to unrelieved suffering. And it's really effective. This is a chapter on faith. And these men have faith and they're doing all these great things. But faith is not always rewarded in life. Here's a group of people that didn't gain great victories on the battlefield. They didn't perform great feats for God. But in my opinion, these are the real heroes of faith because they trusted God when the day was long and the night was dark. They're put being put to death. Not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They trusted God when there was no deliverance for them at all. It's just, there's, you know, you read this and it's startling. All these victories and all of a sudden others were tortured. Tortured? Tortured. Believers, when deliverance in this life doesn't come, we need to learn to trust Him in the storm. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. It's an incredible text, Lord. I think Your disciples finally got it at this point. I I hope, Lord, that we finally get it. I pray that as Your children, Lord, that we would not allow science and man to talk us out of our faith, to water down the Word of God. Lord, help us to understand that You created the world through through Your spoken Word. You constantly govern the world. Nothing is impossible for You. May we learn to trust You, Lord. May we learn to trust You in the storms of life, Father, when it just looks like there's absolutely no hope. May we know that You are still in control and that You love us. And may we rest in that control. Lord, I thank You for this story. I thank You for the demonstration that You are Yahweh. You rule. May we honor You, Lord, through the trials of life. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.